Hello and welcome to the first ILF Dublin podcast of 2018. Today we're revisiting an event from the 2017 festival featuring Arundhati Roy in conversation with Selena Guinness. Thank you. What a pleasure to be here and to see you. You see, I'm either too short or too tall, no moderation, which is what they say about me. <laughs> um, I, uh, it's difficult actually to read sections from this book because it's also interlocked, but uh, I hope the film helped to, to sort of show you the landscape over which it ranges. So I'm just gonna read for 15 minutes and then maybe at the end from another part for five minutes. Really, thank you for being here. I, I think Ireland is the place of the greatest writers in the world. Uh, I'm reading from a chapter called The Untimely Death of Miss Jubin the First. Ever since she was old enough to insist, she had insisted on being called Miss Jabin. It was the only name she would answer to. Everyone had to call her that. Her parents, her grandparents, the neighbors too. She was a precocious devotee of the Miss Fetish that gripped the Kashmir Valley in the early years of the insurrection. All of a sudden, fashionable young ladies, especially in the towns, insisted on being addressed as Miss Miss Momin, Miss Ghazala, Miss Farhana. It was only one of the many fetishes of the times. In those blood-dimmed years, for reasons nobody fully understood, people became what can only be described as fetish-prone. Other than the Miss fetish, there was a nurse fetish, a PT instructor fetish, and a roller skating fetish. So in addition to check posts, bunkers, weapons, grenades, landmines, cassipiers, concertina wire, soldiers, insurgents, counterinsurgents, spies, special operatives, double agents, triple agents, and suitcases of cash from the agencies on both sides of the border, the valley was also awash with nurses, PT instructors, and roller skaters. And, of course, Mrs. Among them, Miss Jibin, who didn't live long enough to become a nurse, nor even a roller skater. In the Mazar-e-Shahada, the martyr's graveyard where she was first buried, the cast-iron signboard that arched over the main gate said, in two languages, we gave our todays for your tomorrows. It's corroded now, the green paint faded, the delicate calligraphy flecked with pinholes of light. Still, there it is after all these years, silhouetted like a swatch of stiff lace against the sapphire sky and the snowy, sawtoothed mountains. There it still is. Miss Jabin was not a member of the committee that decided what should be written on the signboard but she was in no position to argue with its decision. Also, Miss Jubin hadn't notched up very many todays to trade in for tomorrows. But then the algebra of infinite justice was never so rude. In this way, without being consulted on the matter, she became one of the movement's youngest martyrs. She was buried right next to her mother, Begum Arifa Yeswi. Mother and daughter died by the same bullet. It entered Miss Jubin's head through her left temple and came to rest in her mother's heart. In the last photograph of her, the bullet wound looked like a cheerful summer rose arranged just above her left ear. A few petals had fallen on her coffin, the white shroud she was wrapped in before she was laid to rest. Miss Jabin and her mother were buried along with 15 others, taking the toll of their massacre to 17. At the time of their funeral, the Mazar-e-Shahda was still fairly new, but was already getting crowded. However, the Intizamia Committee, 
the organizing committee had its ear to the ground from the very beginning of the insurrection and had a realistic idea of things to come. It planned the layout of the graves carefully, making ordered, efficient use of the available space. Everyone understood how important it was to bury martyrs' bodies in collective burial grounds and not leave them scattered in their thousands like bird feed up in the mountains or in the forests around the army camps and torture centers that had mushroomed across the valley. When the fighting began and the occupation tightened its grip, for ordinary people, the consolidation of their dead became in itself an act of defiance. Martyrdom stole into the Kashmir Valley from across the line of control through moonlit mountain passes manned by soldiers. Night after night, it walked on narrow stony paths wrapped like thread around blue cliffs of ice vast, across vast glaciers and high meadows of waste deep snow. It trudged past young boys shot down in snowdrifts, their bodies arranged in eerie frozen tableaus under the pitiless gaze of the pale moon in the cold night sky and stars that hung so low you felt you could almost touch them. When it arrived in the valley, it stayed close to the ground and spread through the walnut groves, the saffron fields, the apple, almond, and cherry orchards like a creeping mist. It whispered words of war into the ears of doctors and engineers, students and laborers, tailors and carpenters, weavers and farmers, shepherds, cooks, and bards. They listened carefully and then put down their books and implements, their needles, their chisels, their staffs, their plows, their cleavers, and their spangled clown costumes. They stilled the looms on which they had woven the most beautiful carpets and the finest, softest shawls the world had ever seen and ran gnarled, wandering fingers over the smooth barrels of Kalashnikovs that the strangers who visited them allowed them to touch. They followed the new Pied Pipers up into the high meadows and alpine glades where training camps had been set up. Only after they had been given guns of their own, after they had curled their fingers around the trigger and felt it give ever so slightly, after they had weighed the odds and decided it was a viable option, only then did they allow the rage and shame of the subjugation they had endured for decades, for centuries, to course through their bodies and turn the blood in their veins into smoke. The mist swirled on on an indiscriminate recruitment drive. It whispered into the ears of black marketeers, bigots, thugs, and confidence tricksters. They too listened intently before they reconfigured their plans. They ran their sly fingers of the cold metal bumps on their quota of the grenades that was being distributed so generously like parcels of choice mutton at Eid. They grafted the language of God and freedom, Allah and Azadi, onto their murders and new scams. They made off with money, property, and women. Of course, women. Women, of course. In this way, the insurrection began. Death was everywhere. Death was everything. Career, desire, dream, poetry, love, youth itself. Dying became just another way of living. Graveyards sprang up in parks and meadows, by streams and rivers, in fields and forest glades. Tombstones grew out of the ground like young children's teeth. Every village, every locality had its own graveyard. The ones that didn't grew anxious about being seen as collaborators. In remote border areas near the line of control, the speed and regularity with which the bodies turned up and the conditions some of them were in wasn't easy to cope with. Some were delivered in sacks, some in small polythene bags, just pieces of flesh, some hair and teeth. Notes pinned to them by the quartermasters of death said one kilo, 2.7 kilos, 
500 grams. Tourists flew out, journalists flew in, honeymooners flew out, soldiers flew in. Women flocked around the police stations and army camps, holding up a forest of thumbed, dog-eared, passport-sized photographs, grown soft with tears. Please, sir, have you seen my boy anywhere? Have you seen my husband? Has my brother, by any chance, passed through your hands? And the sirs swelled their chests and bristled their moustaches and played with their medals and narrowed their eyes to assess them, to see which one's despair would be worth converting into corrosive hope. I'll see what I can do. And what that hope would be worth to whom? A fee, a feast, a fuck, a truckload of walnuts. Prisons filled up, jobs evaporated. Guides, touts, pony owners and their ponies, bellboys, waiters, receptionists, toboggan pullers, trinket sellers, florists, and the boatmen on the lake grew poorer and hungrier. Only for the grave diggers, there was no rest. It was just work, 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 with no extra pay for overtime or night shifts. Thank you. Thank you for a beautiful reading. Um, I'd like to begin with the closing quotation from your film, uh, How to Tell a Shattered Story by Slowly Becoming Everybody Know by Slowly Becoming Everything. And I wondered if you could explain a little bit more about whether that's a shattered story of a character or a shattered society. Well, that actually, that's, um, I mean, in, in the book, uh, it's in quotes because it's uh, it's an it's it's something that is in the notebook written in the notebook of one of the characters whose name is Estelotuma. She's one of the main characters in the book, uh, and she uh, is someone who uh, like the book is full of, of of these sort of what she thinks of as recoveries, which is what. Uh, Srinagar in Kashmir, the capital of Kashmir, it was inundated by a flood and the man she loves, who's called Musa, you know, sent, sends her in, in, a fruit, in several fruit cakes, crates, what he calls his recoveries. He's a militant in Kashmir and, you know, all these little strange things that are coated in mud and she thinks that her brain is actually a mud-caked recovery and she has all these stories and things about, she, she, she thinks of herself as a sort of chronicler, a weird chronicler of, uh, of uh, unconnected things which make up a very explosive archive in the end. But it's also, I mean, how to tell a short, shattered stories is also, uh, in a way, the endeavor of the Ministry of Utmost Happiness because um, I, 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 I did feel, you know, that somehow, I, I don't know what the reason for, is it, for it is, but perhaps the way that the pressure on writers to be able to kind of tell you what the book is in three sentences about, or how it's cataloged, or on which shelf it should sit on in a bookshelf, or how a publisher should sell it to another publisher, or a, whatever, the industry. It, it eventually domesticates fiction yes. in a way. And to me, you know, this kind of thinking, which is like, sometimes I, I know it's not polite, but it's a sort of, it's like thinking in NGO funding teams, you know? I'm gonna do a novel on trance, or I'm a specialist on caste, or I work in the peace sector in Kashmir, or I do gender studies. And to me, eventually that kind of uh, thinking where it's fine, I mean, all the work that's been done like that is good, but in fiction, if you think like that, 
you uh, reduce everything and make it safe. Yeah. And yet, the air in the place I come from is seeded with all of this. And what connects all of this is what is the story of our life and time. And uh, every moment is no longer even a moment that we own anymore because while you're sitting and talking to someone, there's also text messages, there's also some email, there's also someone trying to send, sell you know, apartment buildings on the phone or yoga classes or whatever it is. And you, you know, our lives are so, every second is so fragmented. Yeah. And yet, of course, somewhere, you know, all of it together is something, means something. So that's what I meant, and 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 also, no, I'm just talking about, you know, the human things. Sure. But there's also animals, and there's also the dead walking among the living, and all of that. I, I think the as as I'm sure people here will appreciate from hearing you read and from seeing the film uh, and hearing you talk about it, this is a, a chronicle of many layers and I think what we'll do is, is talk about some of those layers in more detail um, without hoping to domesticate those, we'll keep their wildness, um, <laughs> so you needn't worry about that. Um, but I, one of the things that struck me in reading uh, the Ministry of Utmost Happiness after uh, the God of Small Things is how you have always been, firstly, of course, a very political writer, but also interested in resisting fixed ideas of identity. So where uh, your twins, uh, Rahel and Esther, um, describe themselves, want to describe themselves as us rather than to identify each other as separate beings, um, Anjum, who is one of the first characters we meet in this novel, is someone who is also both and rather than either or. And I thought um, you might begin by maybe telling us a bit about Anjum and what attracted you to each other, because I gather she has a kind of reality in and of herself, really. Yeah, she began to drop in on me and then just moved in and uh, wouldn't go away. And um, so Anjum, Anjum is a character who was born as Aftab in the walled city that is known as Shah Jahanabad, the medieval city of Delhi, to Shia Muslim parents who, 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 who her father claims kind of lineage to Genghis Khan. He's a poet and he's a hakim of traditional medicine who believes that poetry can cure patients, you know. And uh, Anjum is born, Aftab, uh, uh, born as a boy. I mean, his mother thinks she has had a boy and then realizes that he's actually got girl parts and he's a hermaphrodite. And uh, very soon, with, you know, by the time he's 14, he moves right within the walls of the old city into a home where uh, people who, who, who in Urdu are called hijras live in a, in a, in a home called the Khwabga. They call it the Khwabga, which is in Urdu the house of dreams. And uh, you know, that's how it is even today in India. They, they, there are many, they are not, uh, they all belong to many kinds of genders. There are men who, who like to dress as women. There are hermaphrodites. There are people who have had surgery. There are Muslims who don't believe in surgery and so live within the body God has given them, struggling against, against that or within that. And uh, so, and they, diverse as they are, live together. Some are Muslim, some are uh, Hindus, of course, Sunni, Shia, Hindu, Christian, all of that. I mean, the only people excluded in that, of course, are women who, men who are trapped in women's bodies. They, they for some reason, are never in the Hijra community. But, uh, so Anjum, though Anjum is a unique person, she's not, it is not a sociology of the Hijra community or anything like that. The book, she's a unique person and, her, I mean, in interesting, when you asked about identity, that her story really is that she, at one point she adopts a little girl who she finds on the steps of the Jama Masjid, a little abandoned girl, and, 
and she loves her and brings her up. The little girl called Zainab is brought up with all these mothers and fathers and she's loved and spoiled and adored. And then Anjum actually uh, gets caught up. She travels to, for some reason, she travels to the state of Gujarat with an old uh, friend of her father's called Zakir Mia. And they get caught up in the 2002 massacre of Muslims that took place in which uh, more than a thousand people were, 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 were massacred on the streets by mobs like the one you saw in the film and women were raped and burnt alive. I mean, right in broad daylight, TV cameras, a big metrop many big metropolises as well as in rural areas. This happened under the watch of uh, you know, the person who's the prime minister now. But anyway, Anjum gets caught up in this massacre and, you know, when you speak of identity, she was caught up in the massacre because she's a Muslim, not because she's a hijra. And she actually survives it because she's a hijra and the murderers believe that killing hijras brings you bad luck. So she goes through the rest of her life thinking of herself as butcher's luck, you know, with a very risky relationship with her own rest of the li her life. And then uh, when she returns, she's just not who she used to be because of what she's been through. And little Zainab just transfers her affection to, to a, a younger person in the Khwabga and says, mommy's never happy, you know. So Anjum is so devastated and she eventually just moves into this old graveyard. We'll come on to that. And she lives there. We'll come on to that. <laughs> um, I'm curious about the title, The Ministry of Utmost Happiness, because, of course, ministry suggests an alternative mode of government in one sense, but it also suggests the idea of ministering um, as an action. And I wondered, um, it's such a rich title, um, whether the Kwagba um, and indeed later uh, the uh, Andrum's house in the cemetery, whether these offer different alternative modes of ministry. And I wondered if you could speak a little bit about the ideas of commonality and society that you feel might be possible there. Yeah, I mean, many, many think that it's a satirical title, the Ministry of Utmost Happiness, but it's not really because I think, uh, I think that if there is one urgent task right now for us as a species, it is to uh, rewrite the recipe that is being handed down to us of what constitutes happiness, what constitutes progress, what should be thought of as civilization, you know? And uh, in fact, Anjum starts a guest house in the, in the graveyard called the Jannat guest house. The Jannat means paradise in Urdu. And it is a place where people come uh, people who also, I mean, almost all the characters in the book do have a kind of incendiary border running through them. You know, I mean, Anjum has the border of gender, but one of the people who comes to live with her and who loves her very much uh, uh, is a Dalit, and uh, belongs to a community of untouchables, a Dalit, who too has watched his father being beaten to death by a by a Hindu mob of cow protectors. And in anger, he converts to Islam. And he calls himself Saddam Hussein because he, he's very impressed by this video that he has on his phone of Saddam at the time of his execution, who just looks with utter disdain at, at his executioners. And he says, I want to do what I have to do, and then I want to die like that. And he calls himself Saddam. And he and Anjum, sort of become business partners in the graveyard. And so Saddam has this border of caste, of religious conversion, which is, which is incendiary right now in India, and which has a history that goes back many centuries because uh, uh, much of the Muslim population in India are Dalits who converted to Islam in the, in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries to escape the scourge of caste. 
you have Tilotuma, again, somebody who has, uh, you know, who, who, whose, whose mother is a Christian and whose father was a Dalit. You have Musa Yesvi, who, uh, whose daughter is Ms. Jabin, who, who's now in Kashmir with the national border running through him. You have Garson Hobart, who's one of the main characters in the book, who's an intelligence officer, a bureaucrat, who somehow speaks with the voice of the state, but also is a sort of shambling, dr drinking man. I, I think within the book you say that basically, or the suggestion is that each character within this novel has a kind of equal and opposite reaction. Um, and you say, you know, it would be Newtonian, except Newton isn't permitted under uh, a Hindutva <laughs> version of astronomy. And one of the key kind of uh, spaces within the novel is this um, astronomical park that's in the center of Delhi, where all of these characters can congregate and protest for various political campaigns, really. And um, when I was reading the novel, I um, dug out a map of Delhi to try and find out where this place was, and noticed that it was on the edge of the police colony. Um, and I read that you, um, studied architecture and urban planning before you began to write. And I wondered how much the physical spaces are, that these characters move through helped you to structure your novel. How did that training in urban planning help you conceptualize these layers of narrative? Well, you know, there's, there's two kinds of um, structuring in the book. Yeah. One is, the actual physical landscape to me, uh, which starts off in, in the walled city, in this very close confines of this medieval city, which you saw with the narrow lanes and uh, built by one of the Mughal emperors, Shah Jahanabad, Shah Jahan, and the city's called Shah Jahanabad, and then it sort of loops out physically the book into the the new growing wild metropolis of Delhi, which is being, you know, going to become the capital of the emerging superpower, and then moves, and the center of power in India, and then moves, you know, in a swathe to Kashmir, and then down, down uh, to central India, where the guerrilla, Maoist guerrillas are fighting against, uh, you know, what is known as Operation Greenhunt, where all this land inhabited by indigenous people has been signed over to co mining corporations and so on. So that was, you know, in a way, physically looking at it. But in terms of how you structure a narrative, separate from the physical landscape of the book, to me, that too was a bit like urban planning, you know, where I was trying to map it like a, a great old city with new parts, with main roads, with small roads, with blind alleys, with unorthodox, con uh, unauthorized construction, illegal immigrants, blind alleys, and how do you walk through it without passing anybody by? You know, how do you just why not just sit down and have a chat with somebody and not, I mean, I, I, I was aware that it was a risk because now we are taught to, to confect a perfect package that slips down easily and is described easily and I just wanted it to not do that. Yeah, and we, I'll come on to, in a way, the critical terms in which your novels are read in, in a little while. Um, I, one of the reasons I asked about architecture and urban planning is because uh, Tilotama, your second protagonist, who kind of comes, who we meet uh, about a third of the way through the book, her biography quite closely intersects with your own. Um, she's from the south of India, the child of a single mother who studies architecture. She chooses to renounce the privilege of a media star's uh, wife to live on her own. I'm not saying you're a media star's wife. <laughs> I wouldn't dare suggest that. But um, I wondered then, following on from that, is it dangerous for you to say how closely Tilatama's experiences in Kashmir approach your own? 
Well, actually, to me, in my mind, Tilotama was the child of Amu and Velita and the god of small things had okay. their story ended differently, you know? So she's the younger sibling of Estepan and Rahel, and of course, it's, I know her, I know her very well, but I'm not her. Okay. <laughs> but but um, it's, it's um, you know, again, when, when, when I started to travel to Kashmir, I realized very, very quickly that, um, see, it's not that what happens, is, what happens in Kashmir, it isn't that there is some war going on there which is not reported and therefore people in India don't know about it. It is, it is very much reported, celebrated. Recently, uh, you know, a Kashmiri man was tied to an army jeep and used as a human shield, and it was celebrated, and the man was given an award, the, so, the army officer, and it isn't by any means the worst thing that has happened in Kashmir, but still, you know, it was celebrated. And so, you know, to, I, 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 when I started to travel there, I realized that the story of Kashmir cannot be told merely in reportage and human rights reports and uh, statistics of how many people have been killed, how many people have been tortured, how many people have disappeared, because the story really is of what does it do? What does a 20-year military occupation, the densest military occupation in the world do to people? Not just to Kashmiris, but what does it do to Indians who are allowing that horror to lie in their stomachs, who are digesting it, who are being corroded by it. How does any one of us dare to speak about any injustice that is done to us if we are prepared to accept that? So, you know, fiction is truth. You know, fiction is the only way you can tell that story. And yeah. it's not by any means the only military occupation in India, you know, it, it, like since 1947 in this, uh, there has not been a single day that the Indian army has not been deployed and violently deployed against quote unquote its own people within the borders from Nagaland, Manipur, Assam, Punjab, uh, you know, Telangana, Bengal, Kashmir, not one day. Now, within, uh, returning within the novel, um, Tilo is loved by three men, um, a Kashmiri separatist, Musa, an officer for the Indian intelligence services, uh, Dash Gupta, who she knows as Garson Hobart, and then Naga, um, a left-wing journalist who has been co-opted by uh, the agencies. And um, all of these men, in various ways, try to protect her. Um, and the fate of another character in the novel, Ravati, who is a rebel, uh, and she's the rebel mother of the child that Tilo adopts, suggests what might have happened to Tilo had she not had the intervention of those three men at various significant moments within her life. And uh, that uh, incident you spoke about, um, atrocity of the man tied to the front of the Jeep, has a personal significance, I think, as well, uh, I mean, obviously it has a wider personal significance, but it's got a very pertinent um, recent significance, which is that an MP from the ruling uh, BJP party, a Bollywood star from Gujarat, um, tweeted that you should have been the person who was tied to the front of that Jeep and paraded around uh, the villages of Srinagar. And I wondered how the persistent threats to your own liberty and life um, have changed your sense of what your task as a writer is? Well, you know, the thing is that when, when you live in India now, um, I'm constantly aware of the fact that uh, for me it's double-edged. The reason that I'm attacked the way I'm attacked is of course because I'm no well-known and all that, but people who are much more vulnerable than me. I mean, the man who said that I should be tied to a, a jeep and used as a human shield in Kashmir 
said it uh, based on a piece of fake news that was planted in some Pakistani website and picked up by the Indian right-wing websites. But the thing is that I'm, uh, you know, it, it, and many people agreed with him, and then many people disagreed with him, and there was all the circus going on. But the TV channels held great debates about whether this was an appropriate thing to do with me and so on. Yeah. But seriously, they did. But the thing is that I'm, uh, you know, I'm, uh, well, I'm privileged to be alive, and perhaps I'm alive because I'm privileged. But that same, those same weeks, based on this kind of, which is now a policy, by the way, the, the use of fake news to spread rumors, many people have been lynched to death on the roads in the presence of police. Oh, because they were eating beef, oh, because they killed a cow, and they are dead, you know, yes. based on these rumors. So yeah. we are, like there are lynch mobs running around the country calling themselves cow protectors. Of course, it has to do with taking over people's properties, uh, pushing people into minorities into ghettos. And so even, you know, I mean, the previous elections, there were BJP mm, people campaigning saying, why should Muslims have graveyards? They should be cremated. You know, so uh, it's, uh, you're looking at a situation where in the cemetery, I mean, metaphorically, I mean, when you look at cl climate change, perhaps all of us are living in a cemetery, you know? But certainly in the book, people who don't buy into that India is a Hindu nation now, a conquering, all-conquering Hindu nation, economic superpower, are being pushed into, with the, we, we do have our backs to the wall right now. Yeah. And is that sectarianism structured inside the form of capitalism that India is pursuing? Or is it that that form of galloping economic uh, so-called progress that India is pursuing has exacerbated the sectarian character of earlier politics? How would you read that? Well, you know, this is a subject that uh, goes, uh, I could talk for a long time, and I'm I've sorry. written a lot about it, uh, not in the book, but uh, see what happens is that uh, colonialism also, or capitalism in its new form, which is, as I keep saying, India is sort of colonizing its own nether parts, it always uses existing hierarchies. And so it's absolutely wrong to suggest, as people do, that with the new uh, advent of capitalism, caste, for example, which is the engine that runs modern India, has uh, been dismantled. It has not. And I uh, recently wrote an essay called The Doctor and the Saint, and sh you, know, you can see, for example, um, I mean, just to explain to you in a very rudimentary way, uh, caste is about hereditary occupation. Very complex and yet quite simple. And so the caste called Banya, which is the caste that is supposed to be the trading caste, is the caste that Gandhi belonged to, for example. If you look at who owns the newspapers, who owns the big corporations, who owns the small shops, who are all the money lenders who, who, who lend who, who give out rural debt, they almost 90% will be that caste, you know? Who are the landless? They'll be 99% Dalit. Who are the municipal sweepers who clean the toilets? 100% Dalit. So it has not been challenged, though it appears to be, you know? And so uh, it is really these old feudal hierarchies that have been reinforced. And as the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, who are the people who are being driven out of the forest to pay for the price of progress? Of course, they are indigenous people, you know? So it's, it's really uh, a country that lives in several centuries simultaneously, and it's a uh, it's, a, it's a great spectacle, and you've got to look at it very carefully to see that the ancient 
coexists with the model. And I'm just going to finish on a last question, which is that in um, the novel, the novel is dedicated to the unconsoled. Um, and both Anjum and Tilo's stories seem towards the end of the book to find temporary resolution, only temporary in Tilo's case, I think, in the orphaned children that they, they assume care for. And um, in the intricate interlocking of hope and grief that effectively is there in any orphan child, is that the best consolation that we can achieve when justice is denied? Well, I think, um, you know, one of, the, one of the things that people sort of who call me anti-national all the time fail to see is that the, the ferocity of my critique comes from an even fiercer love for, for a place that I cannot even ma imagine living away from. And, and in these journeys that I've made, for example, you saw the comrades, the women with the guns dancing. I mean, if the camera had panned a little bit, I was there, you know? And, and when you move into these spaces, you find hope in the most unlikely places. And people who do not think of hope and happiness as some kind of stainless steel sculpture that's immutable, you know that it lasts for a very short time, then something else happens, then something else happens. And you, you're a traveler who needs to know that you must hold on to what is beautiful while you can, and then something else will happen. And so, of course, it ends up in this very fragile and yet tenacious thing. And I, I see that in this great city of Delhi, you know. I see that, you know, there might be someone who I've known for years who every day begs under a particular flyover. And I've known that person from when they were young, and now they have spectacles, and now they are you know, older, and they are still there while some huge corporation has collapsed and ruled the world and then died and gone away. You know? So the, the tenacity of fragile things is something which I, I love and, and think about a lot. But I think that's a lovely place to stop this tenacity of fragile things and to invite the audience now uh, for any questions. There are three uh, roving mics. Please wait until the microphone comes to you. And I'd also ask you, please, to make sure that your question is shaped like a question and not um, a lecture. OK, thank you. Hi there, um, thank you very much. It was wonderful to listen to you. Um, I'm just, you said that we should think about the recipe of happiness that we would like to hold down. I'd love to know what your recipe is. Well, well uh, I think the recipe is that, it, to me, it is really this, the idea that there is no permanent uh, way of being happy by building, trying to turn it into an institution and believing in the advertising, you know? That you will find it in the most uh, unusual and uh, saddest places sometimes. And what it takes to, uh, what it takes to really, uh, you know, to recognize first and foremost, I would say that the human species is only one of the million species on Earth, you know? So to me, even living, and in this book, it's about that, that even living in a, in a mad, polluted, crazy metropolis like Delhi, every day, you know, the, the dogs, the birds, the, you know, lost humans, the mad pamphleteers, the dreamers, the poets, they, they, really, they really are, uh, I mean, if you can see them instead of unseeing them, they are the source of every kind of bliss to me, you know? Thank you. Okay. Someone at the back is waving. 
You'll get fit bringing that microphone up. <laughs> Thank you. I can't wait to read the book. But I was just wondering, how do you connect Kashmir with uh, Dante Wada and the Hijras and Shahzanabad and all of that? I think it's an amazing, uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm wondering how you connect it all. Yeah, thanks. You're not going to be mm -hmm. able to answer that in That's 20 seconds. That's called <laughs> the Ministry of Utmost Happiness. <laughs> um, there's a man down the front here. Thank you very much for a wonderful talk. Uh, how do you means how do, do you separate your fiction from your non-fiction means the few aspects which we have just listened to seems to be that your non-fictional work whatever you have said in non-fiction very bluntly and very articulatively you have put it into into this uh, this novel now and just a second part of it i'm from pakistan so how do you see things happening between these two countries which are going on the same path in a way mm -hmm. in extremism as it seems thank you very much well, uh, the, 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 I think the, the fundamental difference between my fiction and nonfiction is that the nonfiction uh, was always uh, in essay form and it was always a very urgent intervention in a situation that was closing down. For example, when um, a few years ago the Indian government announced what was called Operation Green Hunt, where they were going to flood the forests of central India with paramilitary to flush out, these are the words that are used, to flush out Maoist terrorists. And you know there was a sort of consensus building about what it was and very few, even in the media, would talk about the fact that no, actually there were hundreds of memorandums of understanding signed between the government and these private corporations. And although the Constitution guarantees indigenous people right to their homeland, their lands had been signed over and the, the flushing out was not of Maoist terrorists but of a whole population of indigenous people. So I actually just went into the forest. I spent many weeks walking with the comrades. The essay that I wrote was called Walking with the Comrades, and it was really about the life in the forest and what all this was about. What was being sold to whom? Where was the integrated steel factory being built? Where was the mines? Where were the vigilante armies being housed? And how was the whole operation at work? Fiction, to me, is written as you all know, at absolute leisure, you know? So I just, uh, there's nothing, there's no goal, there's no aim, there's no utilitarian impulse, there's no, not, no information that I want to impart. It is just a, a very, very, uh, it's a construction of a universe, it's not an argument, you know? So that's, to me, the difference. But perhaps one thing just to uh, perhaps come back to is this idea, um, speaking as someone fairly new to your work, I think one of the interesting things in um, how the novel is read um, by some critics within the West is a refusal to recognize that a novel can exceed the small boundaries um, that create an interior life as the main source of drama. So basically, this is a chronicle that moves in and out of documentary modes of writing. It has songs in it. It has pamphlets in it. It has so many different types of texts within the fictional story. And the fantastic energy of that is this clash between different documentary modes, between the fiction and the documentary. So I don't think you do entirely separate out this fictional world. The wonderful energy of your work is that these things come to the fore together. So uh, without being polemic, and I think that's an enormous achievement. I'm yeah. sorry, just no, to. It's, yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, that, but the thing is like, for example, the, one of the major characters, Garson Hobart, he's a intelligence officer and bureaucrat and very brilliant, very sophisticated. He's not, I mean, so it's not that I, to me the worst thing would be if I had used fiction to 
to kind of set out some sort of political manifesto and animated these characters to, to, to play that out. But for me, uh, they are, uh, you know, sh showing you things from different ways and different points of view and, you know, even, for example, language is something that was very important for me, that the book, uh, you know, when you live in North India, it's people are, all of us live in several languages. We're speaking English, Urdu, Hindi, Kashmiri, Malayalam, Telugu, and how are the cadences of these, sometimes translated by the characters themselves, sometimes translated by the author, but absorbed in ways where you're not just being gimmicky and having people who speak Hindi translated into pidgin English, you know, but there's this, how do you make it transparent and yet absorb these cadences, this poetry, this music, these different ways of thinking that people live with, you know? So yeah, all that is very much part of fiction for me. Yeah. Should we, um, there are lots of hands going up. Uh, should we talk to the lady in the front here, please? Namaskaram. Um, when you see the state of things in India today and the direction it's heading in, do you despair or do you think there is hope? My, one of my books of essays was dedicated to those who have learned to divorce hope from reason. So, <laughs> you know, I think hope is not an argument. You know, hope is uh, something which is present even in places where if you were to do a rational analysis, you might think there was no reason to hope, you know? So it cannot ever be that at any point um, you would just, uh, and, and, I, and I actually find in, 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 in the worlds that I move through, in India especially, I find it quite, quite ironical that, you know, in sort of well-to-do middle-class places, it's easier to feel despair than in places where people just don't have an option but to fight or resist or do what they do or find a way to survive. They don't have it, you know? So I, I, I do feel like Estepan in the God of Small Things, that things can change in a day, you know? And I know that uh, when you look at the history of India, the history of this uh, cultural guild called the RSS, the Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, which is the guild that the Prime Minister belongs to, set up in 1925, inspired by Mussolini's black shirts, believing and working towards a Hindu India since 1925. We did have to go through this convulsion of nationalism, cultural nationalism, uh, you know, how much, how much, uh, how quickly we will be able to recover from it, whether you can call back this kind of venom that's been injected into people's veins every day, I don't know, but I do know that the wisest, most wonderful minds are at work there, you know, resisting this, and uh, by no means has everybody lied down, laid down and died, you know. Okay. Um, there's a lady at the back on the right who's had a her hand up for quite some time, I think. In the oh, great, yes, let's go there. Sorry, thank you. Um, uh, so just to follow on from what you were saying about not writing a political manifesto in a novel, um, I, I think it's also great to see, um, you know, an anti-capitalist standing on the stage of the main national literature festival, because often politics is quite absent from things like this. Um, so I'd just be interested in what you think of, um, I suppose, how fiction is doing, um, and is it playing a successful role in terms of challenging capitalism, intervening in those um, struggles, and also, I suppose, who your favorite political authors are, who you're reading at the moment? Well, uh, you know, I, a couple of years ago, uh, wrote a book called Capitalism, A Ghost Story, in which I talk about how, I mean, how, uh, how capitalism 
has affected the pedagogy in, let's say, countries like the US and how you know, those who question it are just excluded from the agenda altogether. And now I feel that it's not just it's not just the god of small things, but 20 years of political writing that informs my fiction and that also brings many of you here. Because I feel that uh, precisely this, you know, that what I was saying about the NGOization of the mind, where we are frightened to be ferociously political and questioning, even in our art, whereas, of course, I, I mean, I'm not, uh, I, I've always said there's no excuse for bad art, you know, so you don't, you, you know, whether you're, if, however radical you are, it doesn't excuse a bad novel or a bad poem or a bad painting, you know, you've got to, you've got to peg it right up there. But, but I do think that a lot of young people, I've noticed it in, in, in the last few days I've been speaking in England, I am very, very happy to see that very young people are really thinking about what is going wrong with this world and are not interested in just being fed this, there is no alternative kind of crap, you know? So I think, I think it has to inform everything that we do. It has to inform everything that, we, which is not necessarily some polemical or uh, ideology-driven way, because I think as a species we are lost and we do need to find our way. And I do feel that, you know, even the left has failed hugely in thinking that the only way to analyze society is through class because the politics of race, of colonialism, of identity are important. We cannot pretend that they are not, you know, and they need to be paid attention to. And yet, I believe that the analysis is done. We need an exorcism. We need shamans. We need art and literature and music, but not just to be performing entertainers, but to be asking the big questions risking that in our art. Thank you. I guess this, sorry. Hi, Andrew. Thanks very much for bringing this book. It's absolutely fantastic. Thank you. People like uh, me who's coming from India who live in such ghettos of uh, uncertainty and you're a brave child to tell the, the king is naked. But everybody, um, let enjoy that book. The other thing I want to ask you is, or it's just a coincidence that I found, that you are in the land of Guinness and uh, the World Book records <laughs> the little god from Shah Jahanabad or his little mistress could get into some of the categories. After all, Selena Guinness is also on your side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's referring to a little reference in the book where Zainab, who's this little girl who Anjum adopts, She's very, she's a great animal lover and she protects her goat from 17 consecutive years of slaughter for Eid. But it never makes it into the Guinness Book because there's no such category. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd just like to say the great thing about Arundhati's fiction is that it shows that nothing is black and white. Um, so, um, do we have another couple of questions? Uh, uh, oh, I think I'm neglecting this side. Would you like to give the mic to someone who's had their hand up for ages? <laughs> Hi, I love your writing. I wanted to ask you if, um, and I would include you amongst this, if the resistance to what's going on in the world at the moment is led by women, what do you think comes after protest? Like, what, what's the next picture that you would see? Well, um, I, I, it's, it's, I mean, since you're talking about women, you saw the women in the forest. And it was very interesting that before I went in, you know, I had this uh, idea that, oh, there's an armed struggle and it is never good for women and so on. And then I saw that half of the, the guerrilla army were women. And I spoke a lot to them about why were they in the guerrilla army. 
and uh, you know, some of them are there, many of them are there because they are just seeing their sisters and friends and mothers just being brutalized, raped by the paramilitary and the vigilante armies that came in. But some of them were there because they, they just couldn't take, I mean, they saw an opportunity to escape the patriarchy within their own conventional societies. But there were men, I mean, these are the armed women, but there were tens of thousands of women called the Adivasi Krantikari Mahila Sangatan, which means the Indigenous Revolutionary Women's Association, who are fighting this displacement. The anti-displacement, anti-dam movement is led by women in India. The whole economic miracle of India depends on the displacement of millions of people, and women pay the biggest price and therefore are on the front lines of this fight. But it's very interesting that the professional NGOized funded feminist movements never think of them as feminists because feminism now has been funded and blinkered in a way that the only people who are considered feminist or the only work that's considered feminist is work that does not question this economic hierarchy. You know, so often when people say that what happens after protest, the point is after protest you win. If you win the fight against the dam and you're not displaced, you won, right? It's not this, this kind of equivalence that's made, oh, you can protest, but you, you know, what happens next? The fact is that these are battles of survival and when you survive, you win. You know, it's not that there's ever going to be some one single formula that will save the world, right? There are these battles going on and you, you got to weigh in, right? People keep saying, oh, Arundhati Roy, she's a very divisive figure. Arundhati Roy is a controversial figure in India. The truth is, I write about controversial things. I don't start the controversy. I didn't invent the caste system. I didn't invent the conflict in Kashmir. I didn't invent the displacement of Big Dam, but you've got to jump in. You've got to make it clear. What, what are you thinking about these things? You know, where would you like to, which part of the ship do you want to be the ballast in, you know? And so, uh, I think that the, the, the time is there to step up to the plate and women, women, women in India don't have a choice because it's crazy. I mean, you, you live, let's say, in an indigenous society. Uh, the, the government takes away your land, the land that you have tilled your children and children and grandmothers and so on. You only know that economy, the economy of the land. But who gets the money, the compensation? The man. What does he do with it? He buys a motorcycle. He gets drunk. The money is finished and you're on the road. And you know what happens when you're on the road. So women know that it's a fight of life and death for them. That's why they're there. Arundhati, I would like to invite you to uh, close today's session with a reading, please, uh, to return us to the Ministry of Utmost Happiness. So this is, um, this is a chapter called The Nativity. And uh, it's about a little woman. And it's about a little woman in a very big city. It was peacetime, or so they said. All morning, a hot wind had whipped through the city streets, driving sheets of grit, soda bottle caps, and beady stubs before it, smacking them into car windscreens and cyclist eyes. When the wind died, the sun, already high in the sky, burned through the haze, and once again the heat rose and shimmered on the streets like a belly dancer. People waited for the thunder shower that always follows a dust storm, but it never came. Fire raged through a swathe of huts huddled together on the river bank, gutting more than 2,000 in an instant. 
Still, the amaltas bloomed, a brilliant, defiant yellow. Each blazing summer, it reached up and whispered to the hot brown sky, fuck you. She appeared quite suddenly a little after midnight. No angels sang, no wise men brought gifts, but a million stars rose in the east to herald her arrival. One moment she wasn't there, and the next, there she was on the concrete pavement in a crib of litter, silver cigarette foil, a, flu a few plastic bags, and empty packets of Uncle Chips. She lay in a pool of light under a column of swarming neon-lit mosquitoes, naked. Her skin was blue-black, sleek as a baby seal's. She was wide awake, but perfectly quiet, unusual for someone so tiny. Perhaps in those first short months of her life, she had already learned that tears, her tears at least, were futile. A thin white horse tethered to the railing, a small dog with mange, a concrete-colored garden lizard, two palm-striped squirrels who should have been asleep, and from her hidden perch, a she-spider with a swollen egg sac watched over her. Other than that, she seemed to be utterly alone. Around her, the city sprawled for miles, thousand-year-old sorceress, dozing but not asleep, even at this hour. Gray flyovers snaked out of her Medusa skull, tangling and untangling under the yellow sodium haze. Sleeping bodies of homeless people lined their high, narrow pavements, head to toe, head to toe, head to toe, looping into the distance. Old secrets were folded into the furrows of her loose parchment skin. Each wrinkle was a street, each street a carnival, each arthritic joint a crumbling amphitheater where stories of love and madness, stupidity, delight, and unspeakable cruelty had been played out for centuries. But this was to be the dawn of her resurrection. Her new masters wanted to hide her knobby, varicose veins under imported fishnet stockings, cram her withered tits into saucy padded bras, and jam her aching feet into pointed, high-heeled shoes. They wanted her to swing her stiff old hips and reroute the edges of her grimace upwards into a frozen, empty smile. It was the summer grandma became a whore. Thank you.